Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today, we're going to talk about peacemaking after Ukraine. What impact of the war and the broken relations between Russia and the West had on multilateral diplomacy, on collective efforts to end crises? We're going to look at a couple of places, Nagorno-Karabakh, where Moscow's led diplomatic efforts, and Libya, where the Kremlin's backed one of the conflict's main protagonists. Russia is solely responsible for this food crisis, Russia alone, despite the Kremlin's campaign of lies and disinformation. The Kremlin is targeting grain storages and stealing grain in Ukraine while shifting the blame on others. This is currently, this is propaganda, pure and simple propaganda. You may leave the room, maybe it's easier not to listen to the truth, Ambassador. That was Charles Michel, the European Council's president, laying in to Russia's ambassador to the UN, who stormed out of a tense Security Council meeting. But despite the anger over Russia's invasion of Ukraine, much UN Security Council business has continued largely as usual. Russia's only vetoed one non-Ukraine resolution on North Korea a couple of weeks ago. Still, plenty could go wrong, but so far the impact's arguably been less than many anticipated, given the depth of hostility. Nor have tensions between Russia and the West proved a major obstacle in the Iran nuclear talks, as we talked about some weeks ago. A return to the nuclear deal looks increasingly unlikely, but that's due to disagreement between Iran and the US over Washington's designation of Iran's Revolutionary Guards as a foreign terrorist organisation. It's not due to Russian obstruction. There have even been some positive diplomatic developments in the past few months. The truces in Ethiopia and Yemen, for example, that we talked about a few weeks ago. They weren't in any way related to Ukraine, but they do show that peacemaking can trundle along and opportunities come up even as geopolitics break down. All that said, the bad blood over Ukraine looks almost certain to spill into collective efforts to end other crises. And today we're going to take a look at how the war is shaping two conflicts and the diplomacy around them. Azerbaijan's president, Ilham Aliyev, celebrated what he called the restoration of his country's territorial integrity. 
both countries signed a Russian-backed peace deal that ended six weeks of fighting over the Nagorno-Karabakh region. Now, Russian peacekeeping troops are on the ground, where they've cleared a road expected to become the only access Armenians will have to Nagorno-Karabakh. First, we're going to talk about Nagorno-Karabakh, where Russian President Vladimir Putin brokered a ceasefire between Azerbaijan and Armenia about 18 months ago, which Russian peacekeepers now monitor. People in Libya are voicing fears of a return to civil war. Two rival governments signed a ceasefire last year to end years of fighting following the fall of longtime leader Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. They were supposed to work together and hold elections, but that hasn't happened. On Tuesday, the Prime Minister of the administration in Tobruk tried to install himself in the capital Tripoli. That triggered street battles which killed at least one person and wounded five. We'll also talk about Libya, where the Kremlin backs military commander Khalifa Haftar, who commands forces in Libya's east, and Moscow's the only capital in the world to recognize as Prime Minister Fatih Bashaga, who heads a rival cabinet to Libya's internationally recognized government in Tripoli. We're going to start by talking to crisis groups experts on the South Caucasus on the Nagorno Karabakh conflict, and I'm very happy to welcome on Olesya Vartanian and Zaur Sharif. Olesya is based between Tbilisi and Yerevan, and Zaur is in Baku. Olesya, Zaur, welcome on. Hello, it's good to be with you. Hello. So we want to concentrate in this conversation mostly on what the Ukraine war and the collapse in West-Russia relations means uh, for the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. But perhaps let's start, Alessia Zaur, with a, with a sort of quick recap of where things stand in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, so towards the end of 2020, there was this last uh, outbreak of war. Azerbaijan, in essence, launched this offensive, captured much of the territory it had lost three decades or so ago. So it recaptured what are called the adjacent areas, these seven regions surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh. Tens of thousands of uh, Armenian settlers fled those areas. Azerbaijan also captured back parts of Nagorno-Karabakh itself. And after, what, about six weeks of war, Russia eventually persuaded the two sides, well, mostly persuaded Azerbaijan to, to, to stop. There was a ceasefire agreement signed in Moscow by uh, Azerbaijani President uh, Ilyam Aliyev and Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan. And this left, in essence, Azerbaijan in control of areas it had captured. And those parts of Nagorno-Karabakh it didn't capture stayed in the control, uh, in principle, of, of what are known as the de facto authorities, the Armenian-backed government based in Stepanakert. Russia deployed peacekeepers basically to protect those areas, monitor front lines, and also keep open a corridor, the Lachin Corridor, which connects areas in Nagorno-Karabakh held by the de facto authorities to Armenia itself. So that was sort of the ceasefire, what, uh, a year and a half ago. You both follow what's happening on the front lines very closely. Alessia, maybe we could could start with you. I mean, so what have things looked like since that ceasefire agreement, but before the Russian invasion of Ukraine in, in late February uh, this year? Uh, people were very fast to go back home, um, like thousands of people. And it, it, to be honest, it was a bit surprising to people like me, you know, who had to witness and uh, to see details of this brutal war, how fast people were to board their cars, you know, buses, and to go back home. Russian peacekeepers, uh, they were 
they provided with security guarantees, but in addition, they were also helping with rebuilding the, the houses, you know, changing the widows. So in a way, the people started adjusting to this new life after the 2020 war. And Alicia, this is when you say home, these, but this is these are not the people that lived in the adjacent areas. These are the people that lived in Nagorno-Karabakh itself, the areas still held by the de facto authorities. Indeed. But you know, what's interesting is that um, many people who became displaced as a result of this war, including from the adjacent territories, but also from Nagorno-Karabakh itself, the parts that are now controlled by Azerbaijan, they also went back to Nagorno-Karabakh, just because probably, you know, family ties, networks, and it's always kind of better to live in a place that, that you know well. Um, and uh, many of them uh, had to, and, and uh, in fact, they are still uh, live in basements, in sport gyms, you know, they had to rent uh, apartments. Um, basically, everything was occupied uh, by, by these displaced people who went back and now had no place to live. And uh, during this um, year and a half, what, what has been happening is that the de facto for it is that we're making attempts to facilitate construction of uh, new apartments for these people. But in addition to that, people were basically adjusting to this new life when you have uh, Azerbaijani forces uh, right next uh, to your houses, um, next to your farming places. And this is in essence because the front lines shifted. So the Azerbaijani controlled areas went right up then into Nagorno-Karabakh and very close even crossed through villages that were, you know, partly held by the de facto authorities and partly then uh, held by, by Azerbaijan. But so what then were the, the sort of Russian peacekeepers? There are not that many of them, right? But how much of a presence are they along those front lines? In the beginning, there were many more uh, Russians present on the ground. And these were not just peacekeepers, but also those who were helping with their building, uh, like the houses, you know, and providing humanitarian support. And our sources that were telling us that in the beginning there were up to 4,000 people. Um, but then their numbers went down and uh, the very latest updates that we got from the Russian uh, affiliated sources, uh, it was less than uh, 1,600 which is a really very small number for Nagorno-Karabakh and for this very long uh, front line. Uh, but it also indicates uh, in a way uh, that the confidence that probably the Russian side has in, in its ability to keep uh, uh, stability on the ground, even with this small number, uh, which is there, again, not to fight, but rather to observe the, uh, the ceasefire. So it's not it's not there, as you say, to, to, to fight. But in reality, it is a, a deterrent, right? Because the idea is that neither side, but particularly Azerbaijan, is not going to risk another offensive, which would have to go through, in essence, Russian peacekeepers, which would anger Moscow. I mean, it's the, it's that deterrent factor that is the sort of the idea behind the peacekeeping force. This is what we got in the very beginning, right? I mean, uh, right after the 2020 war, everyone understood that uh, it's just impossible to imagine attacking the Russian peacekeepers. And in fact, we had uh, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, who went uh, kind of public, you know, and in one of his interviews, he even kind of, I would say, warned the Azerbaijani side. But I, I guess uh, we've, uh, with the Ukraine war and um, 
taking place, some of the perception, they started changing. And I, I would not go this far saying that the Azerbaijani side is now ready to attack the Russian peacekeepers, but definitely uh, many more people paying attention now to the fact that uh, Russia is distracted, uh, Russia is kind of focusing all its attention and resources um, in Ukraine, and there is less appetite to support the Russian peacekeepers if, for example, something goes wrong in Nagorno-Karabakh, just because of the this current reality that we're having in the broader neighbourhood. And we'll talk in a moment about how perceptions on the Azerbaijani side of the Russian peacekeepers might be changing. But before we do that, uh, Alessia, I mean, how do people in the areas that are held by the de facto authorities in Nagorno-Karabakh, I mean, how do they view the Russian peacekeeping presence? They definitely look at them as the only um, real guarantee for their presence on the ground. Many people will, would uh, say that if, for example, the Russian peacekeepers are gone, we, uh, we will have to leave as well. So they look at them as the only guarantee for their ongoing stability. And uh, it's not only the words, in fact, because uh, as a result of the 2020 war, Armenia withdrew its troops from Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, and whatever heavy weaponry was left on the ground, much of this was taken with the Armenian soldiers. What we currently have in Nagorno-Karabakh are very poorly armed uh, uh, and then a small number of the local forces. Um, it's nothing to, in, to compare to the Azerbaijani side. So, I mean, uh, the locals, they understand that the Russian peacekeepers are the only ones, basically the only hope that they have. And uh, Zaur, so, I mean, before we talk about sort of what's happened since Russia's uh, latest invasion of, of Ukraine, both sides, but especially Azerbaijan, uh, have has always sort of resisted the idea of Russian peacekeepers. How did this sort of come about that, that Aliyev agreed at the end of this uh, the, this fighting in late 2020, agreed to this, this sort of Russian peacekeeping presence? Richard, I think this was a shock to a large part of the Russian society I mean, the deployment of the Russian peacekeepers. And because the majority saw that Russia had taken away as a full military victory, and the people were disappointed because they believed that Russia troops did not act as the peacekeepers in the areas where they were deployed and did, did not leave the territories. Uh, so, and also, uh, the most importantly, the deployment of the Russian peacekeepers puts an end of one point of pride. Uh, the absence of any Russian military presence on its soil since it, it uh, regained independence. But for, for, for government, uh, Russian brokered ceasefire cemented Azerbaijan gains and set out the contours of new Caucasus. And they point it was very important. And despite uh, Baku didn't uh, get all it wanted, so Baku would have preferred clear direct contour of the of all over the former Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, but uh, but uh, as right now the region starts remains in limbo. Uh, but overall, I think uh, so. Baku officials believe that uh, what they got uh, the, uh, during the war, the, the, uh, and they they couldn't achieve that during the 26 years of the diplomacy. So that's what this was important. And uh, also, they believe that Russian role, whether in the peacetime or the war, and the Russia, uh, Russian role will be instrumental. So even before this year, but then sort of starting uh, in a more intense way over the course of the past few months, there have been flare-ups along the, the the new front lines, despite the Russian peacekeepers. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that's looked like? 
as you know, the, before the February and before this, uh, the, 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 the skirmish in, in, in this area, I think the most violent, uh, things happened in the Azovian Armenia international border areas. And this, uh, part of the, the border was, uh, was much more vital, I, I would say. So, as you say, there have been these skirmishes on the international border between Azerbaijan and Armenia, so not in Nagorno-Karabakh. But there have also been clashes along the new front lines in Nagorno-Karabakh, right? The, between areas held by the de facto authorities and those uh, held by Azerbaijan, and, and, and particularly near Agdam, uh, this sort of strategic area in eastern Nagorno-Karabakh. Yeah, near uh, Agdam. Uh, so, uh, so, and, and uh, as you know, that when uh, and, and also the, the ceasefire violation happened, uh, the more in this area, and we see resulted also the uh, the biggest uh, screamers in this area the, since the 2020 uh, uh, the ceasefire. And Zawar, what justification does Azerbaijan give for crossing into areas nominally held by the de facto authorities? I, I think, uh, so, uh, I mean, Azerbaijan, uh, uh, denied that they violating the ceasefire agreement, Azerbaijan officials, so while, uh, publicly. So, and other, uh, and they say that, uh, the, the movement, uh, was necessary, uh, to help uphold civil, its civil works and infrastructure projects in and around Avdam in order to prepare the region for the return of Azerbaijan communities displaced in the First Karabakh War. And also, the officials in Baku publicly denied that uh, that any uh, this uh, they, they, there wasn't any connection between the actions and the war in Ukraine. But hasn't um, hasn't Baku also said that Russian peacekeepers were allowing the de facto authorities to build up their own forces? Isn't that also Baku's version of events? I think this is this is the the case since the uh, end of the the Karabakh War, Second Karabakh War, because Baku uh, interprets the statement, ceasefire statements, uh, to mean that Armenian troops, whether those of Armenia proper or those of the de facto Nagorno Karabakh, are also required to leave the region itself. So, and this was Baku's uh, the policy since the end of the war. And uh, but this line intensified uh, the, since uh, this year, since February, and Baku uh, officials start talking more about about this uh, necessity of the uh, uh, disarming the uh, uh, local uh, defense forces in Nagorno Karabakh, and also they uh, they do believe that uh, this is the Russian peacekeeping forces' uh, mission to disarm them, and they also uh, often claim that this is what happens in the region or skirmish because of this the new fortification military fortification lines are uh, are building by the de uh, facto authorities. This is the explanation from Baku. But in reality, there's, I mean, there, there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of evidence of, of sort of major military buildups on the de facto held areas. In fact, uh, right after the 2020 war, on both sides, you could see people digging trenches and establishing new positions. Uh, the whole front line, and uh, it's quite a long thing, you know, uh, now in the region, and you could see kind of people doing all this construction work, and, and it's... Uh, it's fascinating in a negative way, you know, I mean, to see how fast it's all happening and uh, has been happening and and how uh, fast it was becoming uh, so solid, you know, with people kind of first starting with digging trenches in the earth and then, you know, like uh, turning it into the concrete. But yeah, I mean, the process has been going on uh, since the very ceasefire. 
I think what uh, with kind of pretext uh, that we have been hearing in the recent uh, weeks, it's uh, more has to do with the fact that on the Azerbaijani side, they are kind of starting uh, having much more frustration uh, with the Russian peacekeepers. And on the Armenian side, I can tell you that they clearly see with recent uh, uh, clashes as uh, Azerbaijani side um, making use of this good opportunity with Russia being kind of busy in Ukraine and not able to enter an open confrontation with Azerbaijan uh, at this very moment. Um, even more, um, I remember talking to some specialists uh, right after the 2020 war. And when we were like looking at the map and also kind of photos of the new front line that we got after the 2020 war, they were telling me that there are two critical locations that they would expect the Azerbaijani side to take when the opportunity comes. And um, in fact, with the location where it happened with recent tension in Paruch village uh, near Agdam with mountains, uh, it, it, this was one of the with areas that they named. And uh, that area is critical not just to uh, sustain and protect Agdam and that Azerbaijan wants to rebuild right now. It is also critical because on the other side of the mountain, uh, you see Armenian populated areas inside Nagorno-Karabakh. And even more, uh, right next to it, from that mountain, you can see the airport, uh, which is not functional, but this is where the Russian peacekeeping base is located. So, I mean, it's clear that that move was not spontaneous. And uh, on the Armenian side, they, they, they believe that this was something that the Azerbaijani side would have wanted to do from the very beginning. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think this is another reason why on the Armenian side, they are so much worried about what is to come in the coming weeks, because they understand that if this happened here and they succeeded and nothing is uh, there to prevent them from doing something similar in some other areas. And Zaur uh, Baku says that, you know, this has got nothing to do with the Ukraine war and it's about... Uh, stopping the military buildup on the other side of the front lines. But, I mean, it is hard not to see this sort of increased military activity on those front lines as sort of related in some way to changing perceptions in Azerbaijan about Russia's peacekeeping role. Do you think that's fair? I mean, do, do, do you think that perceptions in Azerbaijan about the Russian peacekeepers are, uh, and the, the, the sort of the, 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 the deterrence that they actually pose, do you think those are changing? I think that uh, the mood is changing even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And this is related to Baku's new alliance agreement with Moscow. So it was signed uh, two days before just the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And it uh, gave the Baku the belief that there is an additional rational to request a mandate in, ends in 2025. And uh, because uh, now the both countries have confirmed they will respect each other's territorial integrity and sovereignty, so, uh, and even the President Ali highlighted the first provision of the declaration, which says that the relations between these two countries shall be based on the respect to each other's independence and the sovereignty. Just so people are aware, I mean, the Russian peacekeepers are mandated for to deploy for five years, right? So that brings it up to 2025. That was in the ceasefire agreement. 
Yeah, from this point, yes, I mean, the mood is changing and, uh, and there's a belief in Baku that the right now uh, with new partnership with Moscow, they will have a much more rational to ask Russians to leave. So some people in Baku sees that it will be suicidal, let's say, to, uh, to, uh, let's say, to attack or to do something, uh, uh differently to Russian peacekeeping forces. So, and, uh, and this could antagonize Moscow. But I think Ukraine is also changing the mood in Azerbaijan society and about Russian peacekeeping forces. So right now people are talking more negatively about Russian peacekeeping forces in public uh, space and they're demanding that Russia is becoming an occupying power and so that's why the mood is changing in, in over the world so and Russia cannot serve as a peacekeeping force. So there's also the, some kind of the societal pressure uh, about this issue. But I think that we haven't seen any of the officials in Baku saying uh, controversial things about the Russian peacekeeping mandate so far. And so that's the peacekeepers. But the other thing that Moscow has been doing is uh, sort of mediating between uh, Azerbaijan and, and Armenia. And it's been doing this on, on a number of levels. So there's broader talks on trying to get back to a peace process, which we'll talk about in a moment. But there's also the simple mediation between the two sides on the ground, right? Would sort of resolve incidents, stop them escalating. Uh, do you want to say a word or two about sort of what that looks like? Um, so for almost 30 years before the 2020 war, uh, Armenians and Azerbaijanis on the ground, they had very limited or almost no contacts. And uh, in many cases, you can have like a Azerbaijani military that is stationed right next to the Armenian village in Nagorno-Karabakh now. And uh, without really kind of uh, understanding, you know, who are these people. And, and the same is on the other side. You can have like uh, kids who are for the first time in their life, they, they see an ethnic Azerbaijani. And uh, in addition to this legacy, we basically lack any kind of uh, proper mechanism or like a line between the de facto authorities and Azerbaijan. And this has to do not just because of this kind of, you know, problems that they had in the past, but also due to the political considerations. Uh, Baku does not want to give any kind of legitimacy uh, to those, uh, to his authorities on the ground. And what has been happening since the 2020 war is that many of the things that previously were done by the de facto authorities were now in the hands of the Russians. So you could see Russians like uh, chasing cows, uh, returning people, uh, helping to fix uh, irrigation channels, fixing uh, electric lines, and many, many other things that they are absolutely not uh, not mandated to do. The ceasefire agreement didn't include chasing cows? Definitely no. <laughs> but uh, uh, just because, again, Baku didn't want uh, or didn't know how to speak to the other side, and they were left with the Russian peacekeepers doing all these things in these areas along the front line. And uh, there were some situations when uh, you could see Azerbaijanis and Armenians coming together and cooperating. Like, for example, when they were trying to uh, collect remains of uh, soldiers that were killed during the 2020 war. Or, for example, when they have to coordinate uh, the uh, convoys that have to use the Armenian uh, roads inside Nagorno-Karabakh or construction material that they are transporting. But almost uh, 100% uh, of all of this is still happening for the Russian peacekeepers. And since the Ukraine war, we have started seeing the situation uh, when Azerbaijan 
would not allow the Russian peacekeepers to do some of these functions that they have been doing since the, the 2020 war. Uh, like, for example, there was uh, a gas crisis, um, gas pipeline that is delivering natural gas from Armenia to Nagorno-Karabakh exploded either next to the Azerbaijani positions or in the area that is controlled by the Azerbaijani side. And naturally, you would see Russian peacekeepers going there and doing some work or escorting local Armenians who would fix the, the pipeline. This is how it has been working since the 2020 war. Uh, but it took mm, a number of days to figure out that the Russian peacekeepers will not be allowed to do that on the Azerbaijani side. And we heard that the Azerbaijani side wants to do it itself, you know, to demonstrate that it's kind of its territory and it wants to do. Why I'm saying all this thing, I mean, first, of course, it left uh, the locals for about like a month. They were had absolutely no heating, uh, the local Armenians. But even more, it demonstrated that the Azerbaijani side at some point can uh, just say no to this established uh, um, cooperation mechanism that, goes through the Russian peacekeepers due to many reasons. And so that's uh, the Russian role on the ground. But then there's also the, the, the peace process such that it still exists. And that's traditionally been uh, the Minsk. So another Minsk process like, like the one that uh, went nowhere in eastern Ukraine. Um, this one in Nagorno-Karabakh led by the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and its co-chairs are Russia, France and the US. So has there been much to that, both sort of since the Nagorno-Karabakh war in 2020, but then especially since the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Um, since Ukraine, what we have been having is uh, many more people openly saying that they are not able to cooperate in this OSCE Minsk group format. And it has mainly to do uh, with uh, the fact that Russia feels much more isolated, uh, you know, in different forums, international forums. It believes that the West is trying kind of to do everything possible to make it leave different international organizations and all of that. And we had, in fact, uh, the Russian foreign minister who openly accused the West in uh, undermining the format. The thing is that just a couple of days after that, we had the Russian president who signed a, a statement with the Armenian prime minister, again, confirming the Russian kind of, you know, support to the OSA means group. So I would say that uh, what has been happening is almost no coordination uh, between the sides. And, uh, and, and this is really very bad because everyone understands that in the end, no matter how Armenia and Azerbaijan are to reach any kind of agreements, they will have to receive a blessing uh, in the international forum. And that international forum will have to include both Russia and the West. And for now, though, what Armenia supports the Minsk process in principle when Azerbaijan rejects it. Is that right uh, at the moment? Yes, I think I think since the end of the 2020 world, Baku uh, says that uh, so there's no role for Minsk group because uh, and this group is uh, dysfunctional and they don't have any role in, in a new settlement uh, because they couldn't uh, uh, force sides to reach the peace agreement. And Baku says the Minsk group uh, can play on the role about uh, confidence building measures between the sides, but nothing more. And even, and it was the case even before the Ukraine war. And even uh, some people in Baku and while talking, they say that uh, even the Russian Western cooperation in Minsk uh, format was symbolic because they never discussed any hard questions 
So even before 2024, like the peacekeeping forces or any security arrangements, so and it was easy to claim that they have a corporation. Moscow always uh, was a leading actor in this format. So some questions about the utility of the Minsk process from Azerbaijan's perspective, with or without Ukraine, because again, from Baku's perspective, it wasn't really working for, for, for years and that it had yielded little was sort of part of the reason for the 2020 war. But our beyond the Minsk process, what the, the European Union recently brought together, Prime Minister Pashinyan, President Aliyev in Brussels, what, the beginning of April? So what happened there? Uh, I, I think the European Union did a, a, a really great uh, the work even before the uh, the meeting of the leaders in, in Brussels, even before the Ukrainian war. So the first started in the November last year, 2021. So which they re helped the site to re-establishing of the hotline between the, the respective uh, uh, defense ministers, which this helped to uh, reduce tensions in the border areas. So between Azerbaijan and Armenia. So in March, uh, also EU started a new process between the higher level officials of Azerbaijan and Armenia. They met even before the president met in Brussels. Uh, so then the EU facilitating meeting between the leaders of Azerbaijan and Armenia. So and we see at this uh, what I can say from Baku that there is a, a bigger respect uh, to what EU is doing. Uh, for various reasons. The first reason is that they they, li uh, they like this approach because they see that the EU is facilitating. EU, EU is not telling them what to do and how to do. And EU supported bilateral the contact between Azerbaijan and Armenia, which is which is important for them. And in March, Baku uh, announced their principles how they see the peace agreement, and they believe that uh, the, this EU facilitation will help to, them to let's say to work on that. Uh, uh, format. Uh, so, the, so for for these reasons, I think the EU's role is, is becoming much more important. And also, EU played a role the exchange of the detainees. So, also EU is also touching the humanitarian issues. So, so the EU uh, might be EU is not a EU, EU doesn't have any uh, formal format so to act, but EU is actually trying to support the size on 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 many important issues. At, the, at least this is how it was seen in Baku. You know, during the 2020 war, I think uh, uh, one of the institutions basically that received so much criticism, it was the European Union uh, for the response that they had, for the uh, fact that uh, the war finished with, with uh, Russian peacekeepers and Russia brokering the ceasefire and the EU um, not able to do anything. And uh, since then, I think the leadership of the European Union has been trying to figure out what could be the entry points for them. And I agree with Zohar that the, the European Union has been doing a great job because they have been so much engaged between Armenia and Azerbaijan trying to figure out with, where are with entry points for them to start discussing things. And I believe that uh, this is really very positive uh, development and, and uh, not just uh, from the perspective of the conflict resolution but also for the region itself. For them, it's also an opportunity to engage with the European Union. And so what's the best approach now for talks between the two sides? I mean, tell me if this is wrong, but from what I understand, there's very little chance of Azerbaijan, Armenia talking about the big issue, which is uh, sort of Nagorno-Karabakh status, the issue at the core of the conflict. I mean, Ar Armenians living there declared independence, what, decades ago. Baku obviously believes the enclave is part of Azerbaijan. So little chance of talking about that now. But what about talks to improve relations, get the sides to a point where they might be able to talk about sort of more serious issues in the future? 
You know, um, there, there are kind of two approaches to that. To be honest, I mean, in the context of the Ukraine war, especially, one would say that it's better not to kind of to touch uh, such a difficult topic. Um, and uh, in, in fact, after the 2020 war, this has been the approach that let's discuss some other topics, you know, let's try to uh, find the ways how to communicate, how to uh, reestablish transportation roads, or uh, at least kind of establish a stability on the ground. Uh, and, and later after that, let's kind of revisit the issue of the status. And that was an approach that was promoted by, by Moscow as much as it was by Western capitals, right? I mean, there was a general consensus around, around building, building better conditions, improving the economies, building links between the two countries, and then moving on potentially to talks about Nagorno-Karabakh status. This is very much the case. And I believe that, uh, especially in the current environment, we should stay uh, the main strategy. While saying that, that it should not mean that Armenia and Azerbaijan should uh, absolutely put aside the issue of the status. Uh, they haven't even made an attempt to have a proper conversation about the status in 30 years. And probably this is the very time for them to start at least kind of constructing uh, the conversation around the issue. Um, and uh, for that, I, I would imagine having a conversation, but without the, the problem there is kind of the expectation of the timeline, because in Baku, they would want this conversation to be very short, precise, and with a concrete decision in the end. While on the Armenian side, they say, hey, it's really very complicated. The environment is really very bad. Let's have our conversation, but let's not rush. And, and I think we are currently at this very moment when um, either Baku or Yerevan will have to change their stance. And, and Zawar, Baku's position at the moment is that, you know, first, as, as we talked about, if there are talks, they have to move more quickly because the talks in the decades before the 2020 war went nowhere. And its position is that Nagorno-Karabakh is part of Azerbaijan and that the Armenians living there will be given the same rights that all Azerbaijanis enjoy. Yes, and before the 2020 war, Baku always talked about this uh, uh, readiness uh, uh, of uh, offering to uh, Karabakh Armenians as a high-level autonomy, uh, uh, self-rule inside Azerbaijan. So, but it was revoked unconditional after the end of the war. So the idea of self-rule, uh, some say over policing, language rights, all the sorts of things that might come with self-rule, none of that is on the table anymore. Uh, yes and no. Uh, mostly Baku is talking about the cultural rights, uh, some uh, local uh, self-rule, and uh, the plan is that uh, they will be they will become Azerbaijani uh, citizens and they will uh, use all benefits that Azerbaijani citizens are, uh, are using. But... Uh, but other than that, we haven't seen any other uh, say articulation of how they see integration. So even, even for example, uh, there is also s some criticism in Baku by some people, I mean, uh, main experts and uh, public intellectuals, intellectuals that, okay, so what integration means? So, I mean, why there is no plan, how Baku government is seeing the integration plans, but we haven't seen any of these kind of the plans. Uh, but in private, there's indication that uh, they are ready to discuss a, a small degree of the self-rule, and some cultural rights might be also security guarantees to Karabakh Armenians. Uh, and also, uh, as you know, that about this uh, security guarantees, also uh, probably there will be a discussion about the Russian role. And also, as Olisa pointed out, uh, Baku, one of the concerns is that uh, this timeline can be a disadvantage for Baku. 
So there is no need to wait another five, ten years and to, to wait that they will be right momentum because the, in the past, uh, last 26 years showed that okay, the waiting and uh, the delaying the issues is not solving anything. So that's why uh, they are rushing. Let me say something about uh, the kind of the, the way how they see uh, the status issue on the Armenian side. What Zaur has been saying, I mean, uh, about like a different consideration and different ideas, uh, the problem is that in, in the context of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, we have never ever had a paper that would describe different scenarios and different ideas for the status that will be proposed for the discussion to, um, to the Armenian side uh, and uh, to the public. And, and because of that, we are stuck with exactly the same thinking and exactly the same stance that was there when the conflict just started. So on the Armenian side, you will hardly find a, a person who, I mean, if you ask that person what should be the status, you can I mean, almost no one will ever say that they will be part of Azerbaijan. And uh, especially after the 2020 war, I think this is really very important to, uh, to take into consideration that we are, uh, in a way, seeing uh, an absolutely new stage of this conflict. And one has to find a way to kind of, you know, to find uh, the right approaches and the right wording uh, to communicate both to these two leaders, but also to the publics, so that the publics can understand what exactly is getting discussed and then which is directly affecting uh, their security and their lives. So, I mean, um, I would certainly not expect uh, lots of enthusiasm on the Armenian side uh, about the status discussion altogether, but uh, I think you can find the people who understand that that conversation and that that talks uh, they 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 will eventually have to to take place. And Alessia, do you sense that in in Yerevan, presumably the perception must have changed in Yerevan? There must be the fresh anger about the the, the war and what's just happened. But presumably, there's also there must be a sense of of of, of a reality that time isn't probably working in Armenia's favour. And that for now, the uh, de facto authorities' control of Nagorno-Karabakh relies on Russia's peacekeepers and the strength of Russia overall. And with the mandate sort of up for Russian peacekeepers in 2025, generally, there's pretty strong reason for Armenia, at least, to try to find some way of getting as much for Armenians living in those areas as as possible before that date. Is that sense of the sort of precarity of the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, how strong is that sense in Yerevan? I would add a couple of more factors to this kind of thinking that contributes to this increased fears. Certainly what Zaur previously said, like Azerbaijan being more critical of the Russian side. and But uh, certainly Armenia hasn't rebuilt its army after the 2020 war. And if, for example, Azerbaijan is to start a new offense, Armenia will not be able to resist. And Russia is busy now. So, I mean, this is a really very kind of precise thing, you know, that uh, any Armenian leader will have to, to take into account. And the second thing, Azerbaijani importance in uh, not just in the South Caucasus, but in this whole kind of broader neighborhood is only increasing with the Ukraine war, because Azerbaijan is now one of the key providers of alternative uh, oil and gas to, to Europe. 
But, you know, the problem is that on the Armenian side, while re- realizing all this kind of a long list of factors that should contribute to kind of to going for the compromise, for some people, it just goes to another extreme. And they say that that's it. It's not working. Let's just stay the way we are and let's see how it goes. And if Russia is able to go for annexation of Crimea, now it recognizes the NRLNR, before that it recognized Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And look, I mean, it's a huge country and its economy, yes, it suffers, but it's not collapsing. So let's just align with them 100%. And we are to see more and more uh, conversation like this if we are not to to find a way to facilitate with normal dialogue between Armenia and Azerbaijan in a good phase, including on these very critical issues and with proper communication to those who are directly affected by this. I'm talking about uh, people who live in Nagorno-Karabakh. And correct me if this is wrong, but the normalization so far, so the idea of building relations between Azerbaijan and Armenia... Uh, sort of trade relations, contact, that sort of hasn't gone very far yet. And, and, and nor actually has the normalisation between Armenia and Turkey, which was also part of the November 2020 ceasefire agreement, that there would be this sort of rapprochement between Ankara and Yerevan. And despite some initial signs that that might happen, in fact, for the most part, it hasn't. Yeah, and I think it's just becoming uh, more uh, elementary, that kind of, you know, conversation uh, between Armenia and Turkey. And then this is, again, kind of a result of, uh, first, uh, the lack of any kind of progress between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And then the second, also, the fact that we are kind of, no one wants to make any major steps while uh, Russia is still fighting in Ukraine, when we do, we do not really understand what the broader this neighborhood will look like. And... Uh, the the issue there is that Turkey should take the decision to go for uh, opening the border and uh, establishing diplomatic relationship. Uh, right after that, we would imagine having the conversations about like uh, um, allowing people crossing directly between two countries, having trade, transit, and all of that. And, you know, if you uh, look at economic studies, you understand that it will lead to such a major economic boost in the South Caucasus and both for Turkey, in fact, and, and Armenia, but especially for Armenia. But on the other hand, even politically, you know, if Turkey opens the border with Armenia, in the longer term, Armenia is going to become even more dependent and more interested in sustaining this relationship, including by um, going for some, maybe taking even softer stance uh, in Azerbaijan. I think before the war, the role of Turkey and the close borders was important for Baku. But I think end of the war, I think uh, they were at least a formal support of the Turkish-Armenian normalization. But the problem is that there is no agenda. So how are they going to normalize and what's the first steps that they, they should take? And also, I found uh, some people in government, they believe that okay, opening the border will benefit for Baku because it will make the Armenia to, to interdependent to Turkey and they will be much more Turk strong. So, and it, it can also, let's say, it can also reduce, uh, uh, very harsh rhetoric or hardliner, uh, the voices in Armenia that, uh, which they are skeptic or they don't believe that there could be normalization, uh, between Armenia and Baku and also the Turkey. So this is also, let's say, happening in Baku. And, and I think, as always, you said that there is no rush from Turkish side to open border. I think also this the Ukrainian war also also impacted somehow to this process. 
And so maybe we could sort of end on a broader reflection on the impact of the Ukraine war. I mean, clearly, as we've talked about, the Russian peacekeepers play this crucial role for now in sort of keeping front lines reasonably stable and and reasonably static in, in Nagorno-Karabakh. And even though there are these signs of things heating up, it's hard to imagine what it would look like were the Russians not there to sort of keep a lid on on things. And then you've got the political talks, whether it's Minsk, whether it's something else, whether it's a combination, and clearly somehow Russia, which has played a lead role in diplomacy in the past, is going to have to be involved. I mean, it's also, correct me if this is wrong, it's also Nagorno-Karabakh is sort of one of few areas where, in fact, Russian and Western interests, you know, for the most part, overlap. They all want to build relations to some degree between Armenia and Azerbaijan, on the one hand, between Armenia and Turkey, on the other, improve economic connections, interdependence in the region, and then sort of try to get the parties back to talks on the bigger issues, I mean, status, basically. None of them want another war in Nagorno-Karabakh. And yet, despite these sort of shared interests, given all the bad blood over Ukraine and the, again, understandable reluctance of Western capitals to work directly with Moscow, how do you see this playing out in the months ahead? You know, Nagorno-Karabakh um, uh, has been probably one of the few, if not the only topic where uh, Russia and the European Union continued uh, discussing in a constructive way since the beginning of the Ukraine war. There were at least three calls at the very senior level. And when even if you look at the official statements, you know, they can say different things about Ukraine. But when it comes to Nagorno-Karabakh, you clearly see that they are on the same page. And uh, I think, uh, um, I mean, there are a number of reasons for that, but uh, one clear reason is, of course, that both Russia and the European Union, at least for the moment, they share the interest of non-escalation in this part of the world. And uh, Russia is not interested in dispersal of its resources because it's so much focused on Ukraine. The European Union, just uh, I, I think people there, they understand that if we are to have another war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, that is not going, uh, that is going to be devastating uh, for this, uh, for Armenia, yeah, but, but in, in fact, Unfortunately, the practice that we have been having is that anytime we have a war here, it just increases the Russian influence and Russian presence, you know. That for the European Union, in fact, they cannot really proceed with, with mediation between Armenia and Azerbaijan without really at least kind of keeping Moscow informed. Um, it's uh, Russia has been a leading mediator between these two countries. Russia an immediate neighbor with lots of trade going on, influence, like uh, links, uh, not to mention Russian peacekeepers, Russian border guards. I mean, lots of lots of infrastructure on the ground. And uh, in that sense, you have to be a forced uh, ally when it comes to Nagorno-Karabakh. Before the Ukraine war, it was much better between Brussels and Moscow because they had a number of kind of layers of officials from different institutions talking and discussing, comparing notes. And, and that was really very helpful. Right now, much of this, again, has to ha- happen at the very top and senior level. And then this is risky because they may have a kind of a statement on Ukraine and the other side, they just don't pick up the phone. Uh, but the, it's, it also puts Armenia and Azerbaijan at a, an additional risk. If uh, the European Union, if anyone in the West tries to put Armenia or Azerbaijan uh, against the wall, I'm afraid uh, we all know the result. They will have 
to be with Russia, you know? And so it's better not to do that. <laughs> and then the, the only way how to, to do that, I mean, it's uh, to continue experimenting and finding the way to use sustain context and sharing information either directly through and or trying to mitigate the uh, uh, potential problems uh, by asking Armenian and Azerbaijani colleagues to inform uh, and then keep Russia updated. Alessia, Zawar, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for inviting Yeah, thanks for having us. And so now we're going to turn to Libya. And I'm delighted to welcome back on Claudia Gazzini, who is Crisis Group's Libya expert. Claudia, welcome back on. Thank you, Richard. Great to be back. So, again, we'll try to focus mostly on the impacts of the Ukraine war uh, on Russia's role in Libya and sort of implications of its now broken relations with with Western governments. But maybe we could first, Claudia, sort of recap uh, where things stand. So, I mean, about a year ago, when I think when you were last on the podcast, things were sort of looking up for Libya. The country had previously been divided in two, in essence, with an internationally recognized government in the capital, Tripoli, a rival government in the eastern city of Tobruk. General Khalifa Haftar, leading forces loyal to Tobruk, had seemed poised to seize Tripoli. Turkey then got more involved, in essence, helped push back Haftar's forces. The shift in the balance of force created space for a deal between the rival sides that created an interim government, a roadmap to elections. But then, what, over the past half year, things have again taken a turn for the worse. So again now, Libya's stuck in a standoff between two rival executives, one still based in Tripoli, this time led by Abdelhamid Dabeiba, and the other now operating from the coastal city of Sirte in central Libya rather than Tobruk, and it's headed by Fatih Bashaga, who's now supported by Hafta. So, I mean, what's what's gone wrong? Do you want to sort of tell us a little bit about what the latest disagreement's about? Yeah, I mean, when a year ago this unity government was formed um, uh, as part of a UN-led mediation, there was a great optimism. They had also agreed on a roadmap that was supposed to culminate within a year, so by the end of last year, in elections. And essentially the problem was that these elections didn't happen. They didn't happen because there was controversy over the law. So the whole electoral process was cancelled at the very last minute. Um, and so this, this essential, um, standoff over, over the elections is what caused then the rest of the political roadmap to collapse because the interim government that was appointed last year was supposed to only stay in power until elections. Then the controversy became, well, now that we're not having elections anymore, what happens? Should the interim government stay? Should it be replaced? The government that was in place, which was the Abdelhamid Beba-led government, said, well, you know, I was mandated to lead the country until elections, so I'm going to stay until those elections take place. The others who opposed Beba and wanted to see him out, and those included members of the parliament, included General Haftar, and a, a sort of a broad array of people who essentially were disaffected by Beba's leadership. They said, no, we can't have you stay in power, uh, even if these elections are not taking place, and we need to appoint a new government. And that's what led them to form a coalition. It's a weird coalition, if you think about it, because Fatih Bashaga, who's the appointed premier, um, was once, not very long ago, an enemy of Khalifa Haftar. Yet the two created this coalition. The parliament in 
in on the first of March, move forward to um, to hold a vote of confidence and to empower this new government. And and Bashaga himself is actually from Misrata, right? Which has traditionally Misratan forces have traditionally been aligned to to Tripoli. So that's sort of a a a reconfiguration of alliances in some ways. It's a total reconfiguration of uh, of alliances. Uh, first of all, because Bashaga uh, was the one who brought in the Turkish intervention <laughs> to fend off Haftar's attack. Uh, uh, secondly, he's he's from Misrata, and there is this traditional animosity between Eastern Libya and Misratans. Um, but uh, essentially, Bashaga was trying to pitch this idea that, okay, we had a war, we were on opposite sides, uh, but now the time has come to to join hands. And it was a very alluring proposition, if you think about it, uh, this idea that two former enemies could come together and create an alliance. And let me say, there was international support to this idea that well, you know, Libyans want to take matters into their own hands. Uh, let them go ahead with the appointment of a new government. This was not at all part of the UN roadmap. Let's remember the UN-led roadmap still envisaged holding elections. Yet you had a parliament that said, "Well, maybe we're not going to hold elections anymore. We're going to go forward with a new government." But problems really kicked in uh, over a procedural issue. Um, some would say it's a, it's a bureaucratic issue that the vote of confidence did not appear to have sufficient votes. It was murky. It was it was not clear. It was televised. Um, and honestly, those of us who had followed the vote of confidence were very puzzled uh, at the end of it because it was really not clear how many people had actually voted for this government. And this was in the Tobruk legislature in the this was the vote of confidence in the Tobruk legislature exactly um, uh, members of the parliament and and the chairman subsequently said that the vote was sound they tried to show papers they redid the the count of names um, but the position of the UN remained that there was uh, lack of transparency and there was um, there were there were essentially doubts on on the legality of this vote so the UN expressed reservations and this meant that many other countries, including those who the day before were supporting this Haftar-Bashaga deal, uh, didn't turn to recognize this new government. Yet, Bashaga and his ministers and the parliament continue to say that the vote is legitimate, that they are the legitimate government. Uh, this, you know, tension over the vote of confidence provided an opportunity for the Tripoli-based government to stay in power. They completely call, they called the, the vote a fraud and reiterated their position that they would only hand over power to an elected government. So first you needed to have elections and the government should be appointed and then they will step down. And this is the, the feud we're, we're still in now. Three months have passed since that day. Uh, and Beba remains the internationally recognized cabinet in, in Tripoli. Uh, Bashaga has continued to operate and to send public messaging uh, as if he were the legitimate uh, prime minister, but he still lacks international recognition and lacks access to state funds. And so sort of broadly speaking, what have been the most, as you say, uh, except Russia, which we'll talk about in a moment, but most governments in principle, still recognize the uh, Debeba cabinet in Tripoli. But although in principle that's the case, in reality, the way that different governments line up 
behind Debeba or in some cases informally behind Bashaga, uh, you know, is, 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 there's differences, right? What, Libya, a couple of years ago, it was very much feeling the impact of the, of the GCC crisis. You had Turkey and Qatar, very supportive of Tripoli, Emirates and Egypt, very supportive of Tobruk. But there's been an evolution there as well, right? I mean, do, do you want to say a word or two about how the international politics has evolved? Yes, the geopolitical alignments have really changed in Libya over the past few months. So now we have, I, th- I would say, three main groups. We have one group that recognizes Beba and supports his roadmap, essentially saying uh, it's okay for Beba to stay in power. It's better to go to parliamentary elections, and this is what Beba is calling for, and then have a new government afterwards. And this group of country that I would call like the more active supporters of Dbeiba include uh, Algeria, uh, Turkey, and strangely enough, the, the UAE. As you mentioned, the UAE was uh, only a year ago in the very pro-Haftar camp providing military and logistic support, but now has changed its diplomatic positions, A, because of uh, economic ties with Beba, uh, B, because they do not want to recognize Fatih Bashaga, because he was the one that uh, less than two years ago ordered the bombing of an Emirati uh, base in central Libya. So this is one group. The second group uh, are those that are nominally supporting Dbeiba and recognizing him, but more in private, very supportive of the uh, Haftar-Bashaga deal. And these include France, Egypt, and to a certain extent, even the US. Uh, countries that see that, the, you know, that, that want this alliance to mature into actually an internationally recognized government, A, because they were traditionally supportive of Haftar and remain supportive uh, of that camp, and B, because they like uh, Bashaga and they, and they think he's the right man uh, for the job now. And as you say, it's easy to criticize countries for supporting Haftar in the past, but having someone from the East like Haftar and then a, a prominent Misratan politician in some sort of alliance together. I mean, there is something attractive about that. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's uh, it, it's uh, on paper, it looks very good, this idea that you have two former enemies that are able to create a coalition, a broad coalition, uh, and work together. And then you have a third group that consists of Italy, Germany, um, and the UK, uh, so European countries that are, you know, not uh, adamantly supportive of one or the other government. They're taking a more sort of neutral position. Uh, essentially, they believe that there's no other option but to work with the Dubai government. Uh, and, they, and they vow to support whatever UN-led process uh, for, for elections will be charted out. They seem to have a preference for parliamentary elections, but nothing is set in stone for, for them. So this is the, the third group. And, and as you can understand, the, the very fact that we have three separate groups uh, of, of where you know, the, the, the international community stands isn't in itself a problem, because if you don't have a united position, then Libya's rival factions, of course, will be pulling the country in different directions and, all, and feel legitimized to do so because they have their own uh, foreign sponsors to pursue uh, one course of action or the other. And so you spoke about three groups, but in reality, there's sort of a fourth, right? With with Russia in its own, in its own group, formally recognizing actually Bashaga. But I mean, how did that come about? I mean, why did why did Moscow take take a step that no other country's taken? 
Yes, Moscow is an outlier in the sense that it's the only country that has formally recognized the Bashaga uh, government. Uh, essentially, when when that first uh, of March vote of confidence uh, took place, uh, Moscow was the first one to issue a statement congratulating Bashaga for his victory. It's easy to think that there's a plot behind this and that Moscow was um, cooking something uh, that led to this uh, recognition. But actually, what we what we understand is that it was much more serendipitous, this, this recognition, uh, in the sense that um, uh, they knew that the vote of confidence was going to take place. Probably they didn't even follow the vote itself on TV like... Uh, like I did and many other chancelleries did. And so they didn't realize that there was a problem in the in the way the vote took place. And they just issued a statement and they thought and they were told by their friends, the, the Egyptians, uh, that uh, that it was a done deal, that that Bashaga would uh, would be appointed prime minister. So they issued a statement. And we're, you know, we were told by a Russian diplomat subsequently that uh, uh, that they hadn't realized that there were going to be problems in in the parliamentary vote, and they issued that that statement fast, and uh, and there was uh, then no walking back from it. But it created problems. It created problems for Bashaga to have a Russian immediate Russian recognition, whereas the other countries didn't. It meant that even uh, Cairo, that was very eager to recognize and support. Uh, Bashaga and Paris certainly didn't want to recognize a government that had just been recognized by Russia and Russia alone barely a week after the beginning of hostilities uh, in uh, in Ukraine. So um, so as a as a UN diplomat put it, it's like the Russian recognition of Bashaga was a kiss of death for him. What now then is the relationship between Moscow and uh, Khalifa Haftar? I mean, this has traditionally been been close. I mean, as you talked about, the Russians have traditionally, like other governments, uh, supported Haftar. Uh, you have these uh, Wagner uh, forces, uh, you know, the Russian private security company, uh, reportedly close to the, the Kremlin, fighting alongside Haftar. But how, you know, how, how much is the recognition of Bashaga tied to Russia's relationship with, with Haftar? Well, um, uh, Russia has been supporting Haftar uh, through Wagner forces, as far as we know, uh, since 2018, probably. It started off with just training of some of the Haftar-led forces in the offensive in, uh, against Tripoli in, in 2019. They took on a more combat role. Their numbers, first of all, have gone down. During the war, there was an estimated 2,000 Wagner operatives in Libya. Now they're believed to be under 1,000. There was some withdrawals, again, as far as we know, uh, after the commencement of hostilities in Ukraine. So the several hundred, seven, eight hundred, this is sort of an estimate. Um, they control uh, at least two air bases in Libya. One is the Gurtubia air base in outside Sirte uh, and Jufra air base in the central center of the country. Uh, these are air bases controlled by Haftar-led forces, where we understand Wagner is also present. Um, they have a presence in the south of the south of the country as well. Remember, Wagner is not just operating in Libya. It is an arch of Wagner presence in the region, Mali, presumably also Chad. So it's possible that they're using this north-south corridor uh, through central Libya to also reach other destinations where they are operating. 
Um, as far as we know, they used to be paid by the UAE, at least that was what the US uh, was alleging two years ago. Uh, but now they seem to be on the payroll of, uh, of the Haftar forces. Um, uh, what, uh, what is their relation with Haftar? It's always an uncomfortable relation, I would say, in the sense that Haftar is an unpredictable ally. Uh, there's a sort of need relationship. Haftar needs Wagner because he doesn't have enough forces and the, the alliance with Wagner is necessary for that. Uh, but there's also a hate component in the sense that Haftar does not necessarily want to be seen as a Russian ally. Uh, both Haftar and Bashaga are potentially very pro-Western individuals. They would want the U.S. to to provide them security guarantees so that they can uh, get rid of the the backing uh, of um, uh, of Wagner. But they are they are still not in a position to be able to push out uh, Wagner forces. So it's a very complicated relationship, and and. In the eyes of Western countries now, in light of the war in Ukraine, it's very difficult to decide whether you trust what Haftar and Bashaga tell you. I mean, what they're telling Western chancelleries, which is, oh, don't worry, we are not wedded to, to the Russians. We're not wedded to, to Moscow. We want them out, but we want you to recognize us first. So they want, they're saying, recognize Bashaga, and Bashaga is the right man to kick the Russians out eventually. Um, some Western chancelleries say, well, that's, that's a leap of, too much of a leap of faith. What, what they're seeing is that this alliance, Haftar and Bashaga, is an alliance also with Wagner. And that, that, is, uh, that is problematic. And some of the, the Wagner numbers have declined, uh, again, maybe because there's less money. But is that, is that also, uh, to the extent we know, is that also because some of them have gone to, to, to Ukraine? Uh, we don't know where they've gone. We know that uh, we've some people have tracked flights uh, back to uh, back to Damascus from you know from eastern Libya to Damascus, uh, but we don't know if they're actually in Ukraine. And uh, sorry, I should add also a word that when we're talking about Wagner, we're talking about yes, you know. Um, um, Russian uh, individuals, but we're also talking about uh, uh, a body of Syrian pro-Moscow mercenaries that are operating in the country. So those also seem to have uh, with, uh, withdrawn to, to, a certain, to a limited extent. And it's not just the, the Russians, right? I mean, Turkey has also reportedly brought over some allied Syrians to fight in Libya. Yes, exactly. We have Turkey. Turkey has a military presence in Western Libya. Again, it also controls military bases. It also has Syrian mercenaries alongside them. Um, so in a certain sense, I mean, going back to Wagner, it, it creates a balance of power, right? Having the Russians on one side and the Turks uh, on the other. They, their sort of influence over the country is clearly divided uh, between the two of them. And then we have other sort of uh, forces, again, foreign forces. We have Chadian mercenaries, Sudanese mercenaries uh, that are essentially guns for opposition groups uh, that have been exiled out of their countries and that are cheap guns for, for hire that are operating in Libya. And so, Claudia, broadly speaking, I mean, how would you define the way Moscow sees its interests to the extent that it's possible to decipher the way that Moscow sees its interests in, in Libya? Well, first of all, I must say, when I started following Libya in 2012, for several years, Moscow was nowhere. 
right? You, you would look at all these other foreign uh, countries operating in Libya, and really Russia was not there. We only heard Russia just condemning the 2011 NATO-led intervention. So what is remarkable is how we've gone in these 10 years from absolutely zero interest and zero involvement to very, uh, very um, visible uh, involvement. And this is not only for Libya, it's it, the rest of um, Africa. Uh, it's essentially, the door was open to them in 2017, 2018, when Haftar-led forces were trying to build up and there was a request for training and more military cooperation. And Moscow entered that door very quickly. For them, it's a zero cost, high yield investment because they don't pay the operations themselves, at least for Wagner forces. Uh, and yet uh, they have been able to create a network around the country, have military bases under their control. They brought in fighter jets at the end of the war and reestablished themselves as a key actor. We know that Russia had always had this dream, even in the Gaddafi days, and they went to Gaddafi asking for this, this dream of creating a port on the, on the Libyan coast. And it's possible that this is still their, uh, their end goal. So presumably they want to stay in Libya and they want to, they want to, uh, to have a say, uh, in, in the future of, uh, of Libya. But unfortunately, now there's little room for, you know, diplomatic engagement with Russia. And this is also then complicating the situation on the ground. And we'll talk about precisely that in a moment. But could, before we do that, could we just, um, Claudia, so, I mean, when we talked about uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, we talked a little bit about how Azerbaijan's hydrocarbons production, you know, how that could change its foreign relations in light of Ukraine and the energy crisis, you know, potentially give Baku more leeway in its relations with, with Western governments, for example. Libya, obviously, also a, a, a big oil producer. I mean, how do, do you see in any way calculations in uh, capitals around the world, Western capitals and others, calculations changing related to Libya because of its status as an oil producer? Libya is a, a big oil producer, but uh, because of the political feuds that uh, have kicked in over the past few months, um, oil production has gone down. And actually, it's the Haftar Bashaga camp that uh, has leveraged its control over oil facilities and installations to close them. Uh, and um, has been pegging the reopening to certain political concessions and uh, greater control over the finances of the state. So from the foreign uh, point of view, foreign capitals, especially European capitals, Libya is in theory a big uh, producer. They want to see production uh, of oil and gas increase to make up for the loss of uh, Russian gas, but it's essentially considered an unreliable partner. There's also speculation that these oil closures are intentionally driven and there could be a Russian hand behind this. The theory goes, and we don't know if this is conspiracy theory or not, is that, you know, Russia has an interest to keep production in Libya low. <laughs> it benefits essentially Russia uh, and is detrimental to, to your European powers. Now, this is just, cons you know, this is pure conspiracy theory, but you can see why these dots would, would link. And, and it is, uh, there, is a, there, is, there is a veneer of um, realistic probability that, uh, that that is also happening. 
although the sort of accidental recognition of Bashaga doesn't suggest a great strategic mind behind Russia policy, right? Mm. No, there's certainly, you're right, a, a lot of what Russia does is accidental. There's always an element of of Libyan agency in all these uh, events that we've been talking about. There's Libyan agency in the appointment of the Bashaga government. There's Libyan agency in the closure of the oil ports. But you can see that these uh, moments do provide a further opportunity for Russia to insert itself or prolong a certain crisis uh, if, it, if it wants to. So uh, let's talk a little bit then about sort of ways to, to, to break the impasse, to sort of bridge these differences between the two rival governments. So first, there's uh, the appointment of a new UN envoy, uh, which sort of requires buy-in from the Security Council at the moment. Stephanie Williams is sort of acting envoy or, or advisor. She played this very instrumental role in the deal of, of, of last year, but her time is going to be up fairly soon. Um, so that that's first. And then secondly... You know, the way, as as you've described, sort of the international politics of, of different governments with different positions. So really, you need some sort of new international track. I mean, something like the meeting in Berlin that helped set the stage for the for, for the previous deal. But on both those counts, it's easy to see how the sort of fraught Russia-West relations are an obstacle to both of those. Yes, of course. Um, Russia is key to the appointment of a new um, SRSG to Libya. Uh, and uh, as things stand now, Russia is not invited to the negotiating table or, or consultation exchanges uh, between foreign countries. But there are problems that aren't necessarily related to where Russia stands. I mean, the first problem, as you said, is an SRSG. But what is the UN plan? We need a workable UN plan. And currently, I'm not sure that that's there on the table. The UN-led negotiations are, uh, are, from my point of view, trying to find a roadmap for elections, and they might go through a constitutional referendum. They're trying to review the constitution draft that was written in 2017 and go to a referendum. This is a dead-ended process. Um, uh, also, the UN hasn't tackled head-on the issue of the two rival governments. It hasn't proposed new negotiations. So when we talk about the importance of having a new SRSG, it's not just the physical person. It's the importance of having a UN-led plan that can be uh, implemented in the months to come. Uh, and now Stephanie Williams is due to step down. Uh, on the 30th of June, and we're expecting many months of uh, vacant UN leadership, actually. Uh, what we know is that the Russians have um, echoed the demands of some African countries um, to have an African SRSG. Um, the Egyptians wouldn't mind that. Uh, certainly, we know that Russia said, we don't want an SRSG from a NATO country. So that, that's, uh, that's the, the, the one request. And it's very hard to, to, to find a right person available, uh, qualified, interested in picking up uh, the Libya file. But yes, Russia's sort of tensions with the West are a hurdle, but they're not the only problem that we're facing. Also, for the issue of international consultations, it's always been key to have international support to the UN-led process. And in effect... If we're now talking about different groups between the in the capitals, once you know, supporting one one premier, the other premier, and and the third group, 
um, if we have this situation now, it's because there hasn't been enough confidence also amongst the, the, the foreign actors on the UN-led plan. And this has pulled them then in different directions. Um, so in order to have unity amongst foreign actors, yes, we need the convening of an international summit like the one in Berlin that was, that was successfully held uh, in 2020 and then again last year. And Putin was at the Berlin meeting, right? So Russia was uh, involved in the international consultations uh, on uh, on Libya at a very high level. First, in the Palermo meeting, remember this predates uh, this predates even the whole Berlin track. This was before the 2019 offensive, right? Putin uh, actually put big planes that flew Haftar into uh, to Palermo at the time, and he was there at the meeting. In Berlin as well, so post-Tripoli uh, offensive, early 2020, uh, Merkel really managed to bring heads of states around the table uh, to, to settle the, the Libya uh, war. Putin was there, Sisi was there, Erdogan was there. Now, why did that happen? A, because we had Merkel. B, because Germany saw um, it as a national security issue to bring the Libyan parties to an agreement, because from Germany's perspective, uh, an instable Libya and a Libya at war meant potentially the risk of more migrants to Europe. And three, there was, from the backers of Haftar, really an interest to end this war, that they had finally realized that they were not going to win. So they wanted out. And this sort of uh, a combination of factors is what allowed for this very high level uh, engagement on the Libya file. Everybody wanted to find a solution uh, and you needed the sort of creation of an international consensus uh, to push a UN-led process uh, forward. And this time around, uh, much harder to see that sort of international track, at least uh, uh, the sort of track that would include Russia? Now, Russia is not at the negotiating table. The US clearly doesn't want Russia uh, um, uh, at the consultation. It's a consultation table more than a negotiating table. Um, uh, European capitals do not want Moscow at the table. So they've, they've relapsed back into this old format, which is the P3 plus 2 plus 2. So it's UK, US and France plus Germany and Italy, uh, plus uh, Turkey and Egypt. So this is the consultation process. Even if you have to use this type of format, be sure that at least the consultations with the Russian indirectly are still happening, you know, behind the scenes. But we're not sure that that is actually happening. We're not sure the Turks that could be the, uh, you know, vehicle for, for a conversation. We're not, to, we're not too sure that they're actually talking uh, about the Libya file with their counterparts in Moscow. So this is a problem. But again, we also need a plan that the international community can rally around. Uh, so it goes back to the first problem. You need international unity, but you also need a workable plan, be it from the Libyans, be it from the UN. You need a, a, a positive and consensual way forward that can actually be implemented for the internationals to, to rally around. So, I mean, Claudia, as you said, the, the Russia-West tensions are not the only obstacle, or even they're not the main obstacle. The main obstacle is the UN trying to get Libyan parties to agree on some sort of roadmap that international actors can throw their weight behind. Um, but 
At the same time, um, Western powers at the moment uh, loathe to sort of sit at the table in any way with, with Moscow to, as you talked about, the P3 plus 2 plus 2, you know, very reluctant to involve Russia in the way that Russia was involved even just a year ago uh, at, the, at the Berlin meeting. Um, I mean, is it possible to, to, to see Libyan parties reach some sort of roadmap and then progress along that roadmap? Is it possible to see that, you know, if, if, if Russia itself opposes? I mean, how much of a spoiler role can Russia play? In the current state of affairs, I, th- I think it'll be difficult for the, for, for the Libyans to come up with a, with a plan. Uh, and so there's passive spoiling in this sense. You don't need to actively spoil uh, if you're a foreign state or if you're Moscow, because um, uh, many uh, people inside the country are, are already by default uh, spoilers of a, of a consensus. Um, but it is, uh, it would help to have uh, Russia on board with a way forward, whatever that way forward is, because see, Russia in the past, for example, printed currency for the Eastern authorities. This was in 2015 to 2019. The fact that banknotes were coming from Moscow helped fund uh, the parallel executive in Eastern Libya. Um, so the question that many people have now is how is this parallel government based in CERT, how is it going to fund itself? Is it going to start parallel financing? And if you have money, you can fund war. If you don't have money, you cannot fund war. And the same goes for a government. If you have money, you can fund a government. If you don't, uh, then a government sort of expires uh, and, and dies on its own legs. So the big question that we have in mind now is how... Uh, you know, to, in order to push Libyans towards agreeing on a, on a way forward is to try to ensure that A, their funding is limited, this be it the international recognized government or the, the rival government, curb their access to finances in order to ensure that then they agree on a roadmap. So potentially, Russia could play a big spoiling role if tomorrow it were to say, I'm going to start printing banknotes again, because this would put in motion the process of parallel financing um, that we had in the past. It could also, um, uh, you know, help support uh, Haftar forces logistically if they were to try a new Tripoli offensive. Uh, Fortunately for now, this is off the cards. We don't see that there is that appetite. Uh, but uh, there could be spoiling potential on on the horizon, that's for sure. Claudia, thanks uh, so much for coming. Oh, you're very welcome. Always a pleasure. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. We also now uh, have some new transcripts for our shows. So if you want to reference or check up on something you've heard, that should make it easier. You can also find those on our website. They're up usually a few days after the episode comes out. So check those out too. Thanks, of course, to our producers, Sam Mednick, Kevin Murphy, Finn Johnson. And thanks very much as ever to all of you, to all our listeners. Thanks especially to those of you who are still listening after what has been a monster Uh, episode Uh, next week will be shorter i promise we're also getting toward the end of this second season of hold your fire 
but we'll have Kenyan elections, Ukraine again for sure, maybe some reflections on the past six months uh, before we break for the summer. Please do get in touch if you have any suggestions. You can write to me directly at crisisgroup.org or use the podcast at crisisgroup.org address. If you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. Tell your friends and colleagues about us. And I hope you'll join us again next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.